0: All right, if you have your Bibles, let's open together to uh, the book of Genesis. We're jumping into chapter 3 today. Chapter 3 is a famous chapter, right? Uh, It's what we call uh, the fall of man. Uh, It's it's the story of where uh, the brokenness of this world came from and how it came about. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 3, we're going to look at the first 11 verses, and then we're also going to look at verse uh, 21. We're going to do two sermons on uh, Genesis chapter 3. This is one of those chapters, uh, it's one of those watershed passages. There's, there's so much here, uh, we could spend a month on it. We're going to spend two Sundays. Uh, today we're going to focus on just one aspect uh, of chapter 3, and uh, let me kind of introduce, uh, introduce it this way. Uh, there, was, there was this trend on social media a number of years ago, you know, that kind of caught the world's attention, and here's how it looked. Uh, a father was very, very frustrated at his, you know, young son's grades and their academic performance in school, so what the father did was he gave uh, his sons uh, very embarrassing haircuts, and he did it on film. Uh, and what he also recorded on film the reason why he was giving them these, these awkward and embarrassing haircuts. Uh, and then he sent his sons to school that day. Uh, there was another video of, uh, of another parent uh, who found out that his son was bullying at school. So, again, all of this is on film, like on a, on a smartphone. Uh, he made his son run to school the next day, which was about a mile away from their home, and it was raining. And he filmed it the whole way, and he put that on, on YouTube. Uh, there was another parent who was frustrated with their uh, child's addiction to social media. So uh, this parent uh, took their, their child's smartphone and put it on a stump, and um, using her social media account, she got her shotgun, and she filmed herself uh, shooting uh, her son's smartphone with a shotgun, you know, turning it to powder right? Um, All of those stories and every, all of the parents involved in each of those stories said, said almost the same thing about what they were doing. Um, We're just doing old school parenting. This is just old school parenting. But we would call it something else, wouldn't we? That's not quite parenting. That's something else. Genesis chapter 3 talks about this very thing. Uh, I'm actually going to begin in verse 25 of chapter 1. I want to include that passage uh, today, Uh, and then I'll jump in with verse 1 of chapter 3. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Chapter 1, verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Chapter 3, verse 1. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eye, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, three quick stories that all share something in common. Uh, when I was in junior high, I got in trouble just one time. <laughs> just once in junior high. It was right at the beginning of, of lunch and... Um, you know, the way discipline was kind of handled in junior high was, was very intentional. Uh, we, we kind of met in a big gymnasium that had a stage at one end. Uh, so it was kind of like a gym and an auditorium, you know, in, in, in one, and a cafeteria, you know, three in one. And so if you ever did anything wrong in school, there was one table up on the stage. And it was like those long rectangular tables, but there's one table. And that's where all the bad kids went to eat lunch and it wasn't kind of off to the side. It wasn't kind of hidden. It was on stage and on purpose, and if you, if you occupied that table regularly enough, you wanted to sit in the seats with your back to the crowd. Th- those were the prime seats, uh, and it was almost doubly worse for you if you had to sit in the seats that faced the crowd. That's one story. One a little bit closer to home, a little bit more recent, but I was talking with one of our community members yesterday about like this, this food drive this trying to collect food for, for families uh, who are really in need in the city, and she told me a story about how last week, um, you know, it being spring break, they were trying to send kids home uh, with bags of food, and, and the food were put in these special bags because they were durable and they would, uh, they would make the trip home, but none of the kids wanted to take the bags, uh, and, you know, this, this leader in the community was like, well, why, you know, why, why didn't you want to take these bags home? Uh, and, and after the second to third kid kind of refused, um, you know, the bags were very obvious uh, of what they were and what was in them, um, the kids felt very uncomfortable taking the bags home in front of all of their peers and their friends and what that might communicate. Uh, that's, that's one story. Um, the other uh, story this week is, is this, um, do we worship this week or do we not? And then when I announced that we were having worship service, was there any turmoil, was there any questioning in your heart of what do we do? Because what I tried to make clear was, hey, we're, we're not forcing anybody into a decision today. You know, you as a household can decide one way or the other, no judgment. But when you're given freedom in moments like that, uh, do you feel free? What's that narrative that's going on in the back of your head? Jake said we we can skip church if we're concerned about health reasons, but should we? Can we? Oughtn't we? What do all three of those stories have in common? This this human struggle, uh, this human fight of internal shame and embarrassment of, you know, if I do something right, or if I do something wrong, what are people going to think about me? You know, what was that table up on the stage, you know, if you got in trouble at school, that was the table of shame. You were on display. And why did you want the seat with your back to, the, to your peers is because you didn't want to look people in the eye, right, because you were experiencing shame. Why didn't those kids want to bring those bags home from school? Because they already knew that they were poor. They already knew that they were struggling, but that was like a badge. That signaled to everybody that we're poor, and they were very uncomfortable with it. Some of us, when we're wrestling through, you know, do we go to worship today or do we not? We're wrestling with that that internal struggle of, of shame is as if I don't, I'm going to feel bad. So I'm going to base my decision on how I'm going to feel after I make the decision and not before and not by what's right. We base everything off of shame. And what I want to suggest this morning is that that shame is... Is a, is a narrator of all of our lives to different degrees. Some of us grew up in environments where uh, shame was more severe, it was more open, it was more of a struggle uh, than some. But all of us, to some degree, if you're a human being, we wrestle with shame. It's how we show up. But one writer says, his name is Jay Stringer, he's also a counselor, he says, shame, if we let it be the narrator of our life, um, it's a cruel narrator. It's a brutal narrator, and in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we actually have something better than shame. It doesn't have to be the narrator of our life, and that sounds like good news, doesn't it? Uh, I want to look at two things uh, this morning. Uh, I want to look at um, the reaction from Adam and Eve. Um, That's the first point. Um, I want to look at our reaction, and the second, I want to look at God's response. So, if you're keeping notes, that's, uh, that's also in your bulletin. Uh, you can keep notes there. Uh, I want to look at our reaction, and then God's response. So first, our reaction. Uh, when you think about this word shame, um, it, it's it's a hard word to define. It's like trying to nail Jello, you know, to to a wall. It's 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 difficult to kind of put into words what what is shame. And so I'm taking my definition of shame this morning from a counselor. His name's Ed Welsh. He's got a book called uh, "Interrupting Shame," and um, He's, he's a very, very wise counselor. His, this is his, his definition of shame. It's that, that feeling of being unacceptable because of something you did, because of something done to you, or because of something you're associated with. Is that feeling of, of unacceptance, of being unacceptable because of something you did, or something done to you, or something you're associated with and that leaves you feeling exposed. That leaves you feeling uh, humiliated. Uh, notice, and this is the reason why I put verse 25 uh, in, in our study this morning and in our sermon, uh, notice the language uh, that Moses uses, and the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Uh, in other words, um, shame was not a part of the economy yet in chapter 1. There were no categories for shame. Adam and Eve were fully known to one another. Remember, we talked about this last week. This was our definition of intimacy as being fully known and at the same time fully accepted. When you feel fully known and when you feel fully accepted by someone, there's no shame. You're free to be yourself. Maybe you have a friend um, or maybe it's your spouse and you've noticed how you're able to be a little bit more comfortable, maybe a little bit more humorous, a little bit more free in front of them than you are, you know, in front of crowds. You know why that is? It's because your spouse or your close friend knows you and accepts you. Uh, I've got very, four very, very close friends who are pastors, and when I'm with them, a lot of walls and a lot of inhibitions come d- comes down because they know me, and I'm accepted by them, and they're kind of embodying the gospel to me in that way, and I feel freer in front of them than I do some other people. Um, that's the absence of shame. There's no need for covering, and there's no need for clothing. Um, you're fully known, you're fully exposed to the other person, and there's no shame. But as we all know, um, Genesis 3 begins the bad news uh, in the gospel. Adam and Eve rebel, and intentionally. And what is introduced into this story now is shame, this, this feeling of being exposed, of, of humiliation, Um, But but, but first, notice this. Notice when uh, they experience uh, this shame for the first time. That was the experience first between Adam and Eve. Uh, Let's go back to uh, verse 7. Or excuse me, let's do 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they saw that they were naked. I mean, you see now the contrast between verse 25 of chapter 1. They were naked and not ashamed. Verse 7, but now they were naked. As a response, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This shame that Adam and Eve experienced for the first time. Notice, um, God doesn't play a role in this passage until verse eight, right? God doesn't come on the scene. He's not walking in the garden the cool of the cooling day until verse eight. Notice when shame is first experienced by Adam and Eve in the story. It's just when they're together. It's just when it's, it's the two of them. Shame, shame's, you know, before God's gonna come in in verse eight, but, but notice uh, just between Adam and Eve, uh, before God asks, where are you, there's enough shame, there's no, uh, enough exposure just between the two of them, uh, enough to go ahead and sow fig leaves to make coverings for themselves. And here's why I, I think that's important. Um, you might be a believer this morning here, and you, you may not be. Shame is not something you experience if you're a follower of Jesus. It's not something you experience if you're a Christian. Shame is the human experience. All shame needs is another person, and there was already enough shame in the decision that they made between Adam and Eve to feel like they needed to make coverings, they needed to amend, that something had to change, they were exposed, and that this was not safe. We had to cover ourselves. And that's what they did. So when you think about, you know, moments of deep shame for you, um, some of your most embarrassing moments, uh... How do you relive those moments in your head? Uh, if, you, if you tell them, you do so painfully. Recall of these events are, are incredibly painful to retell or even recall. How do we typically respond to shame? Adam and Eve uh, give us kind of like our number one and number two uh, modes of operation, especially in, in response to shame. Uh, it's first to cover, and then it's to hide. First to cover and then to hide, verse seven. when the eyes of both were opened, they knew that they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. Think about this. You don't have to be a gardener or a farmer to get this point. Uh, all of us have picked a flower in spring. All of us have, you know, pulled a, you know, a, a leaf off of a tree in autumn that was really pretty or that had really good color. What happens? Uh, to plants when you remove them from the trunk or from the vine or from the tree or the branch that they're on. They lose their moisture. They become brittle. They crumble and they decompose. How long do you think these coverings lasted Adam and Eve? Not very long. They were going to be in the business of making and remaking coverings for the rest of their life. These coverings were temporary, they were not permanent, um, but they did it nonetheless. Coverings are like our excuses. When we think about our shame, uh, we, we try to answer our shame by saying, well, gosh, you know, a covering looks like this. I, I, I was young, I was young then. Or to some of our, our mistakes and some of our shame and embarrassment, we'll say, well, I was just doing my, what my boss told me to do. Somebody else was thinking for me. And I had to do what they said. I didn't have any other choice. So we, so we blame shift. We're, we're we're covering. We're making excuses. And the problem with those is that they're all temporary. Does that ever actually do anything with your shame? With that deep internal sense of uh, I'm I'm not accepted. That's why for some of us it's, it's very very difficult to maintain eye contact with someone when we're having a conversation with them because we feel exposed. We feel uncomfortable or if, if you have children or have nieces or nephews and you've ever watched them being disciplined or corrected, what do kids do when they're in trouble? They go jump in bed and pull the covers over their head. Why? Because we're trying to cover our shame. We have that feeling of being exposed and we're wondering, we're asking that question in our heart, are we, are we accepted? Now that I'm exposed, am I accepted? And we try to cover ourselves Those are our excuses, Uh, but they're temporary. In addition to covering, we hide. Look at verse 8, "...and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden." So, again, notice the chronology of the narrative here. Uh, Wearing, you know, suits, and clothing and outer garments, loincloths of, of fig leaves, um, Adam and Eve still hid. What did they know about the coverings they made? Even though they made these coverings, even though they had covered themselves, they still felt exposed. You don't hide yourself unless you still feel exposed, right? And that's what they did they ran. They do what we do. Um, when excuses run out, uh, when those fig leaves become brittle and start to decompose, we run and we hide. Um, think about it this way. You know, I, we make a lot of jokes about introverts and extroverts and our, and our different personalities uh, in the church. I, I, I wonder, and wonder with me for, for a moment about this. If we could snap our fingers and if we could take all shame, all embarrassment, Um, all sorrow out of our souls, out of our experience, out of our reality. I wonder how many of us who say we're introverts would actually turn extroverted. Let me say it another way. I wonder how many of us think of ourselves, and we call ourselves introverted, but really inwardly what we're saying is, is, is my shame is so deep, and my fear of of exposure is so overpowering I just can't enter social circumstances or scenarios. I've got to be by myself. I self-isolate. So much so that if, if miraculously that shame and that guilt were gone, would you become an extrovert? Because you truly are an extrovert. But we just call it introversion. But really what we're doing is hiding and isolating ourselves Um, Can we be honest about ourselves in that for a minute? Uh, We do that. We make excuses. We hide. We keep people at arm's length. Yeah, we we might be present physically, but but emotionally and spiritually, we keep people at a distance. And we hide uh, from each other, and we hide uh, from God. That is indeed a sorrowful state and bad news. That's our reaction to shame. Uh, Here's God's response. Uh, God begins, uh, God responds in two ways. He responds with a question and then with a covering. Uh, a question and a covering. So at a moment like this in Genesis chapter 3, again, imagine you're, you're looking through the lens of a camera. You're watching this narrative play out. This is a watershed moment in the Scriptures. Genesis 3 is a very, very popular chapter because this is, is where the fall of, of mankind happens and begins. This is the genesis of it, the beginning of it. So what kind of a response do you think God is going to have in this moment? because again, Adam and Eve have just blown it for everybody. Everything good has been undone. Rebellion and this this parasite of sin has now entered the world, has now entered creation. This is a watershed moment in Scriptures. How will God respond? What are His first words going to be to the newly fallen man and woman? Uh, If we were in this position, uh, we would offer judgment. We would offer uh, a sharp statement. Something along the lines of, what did you just do? But notice God's gracious response in the form of a question. He doesn't say, what did you just do? He says, Where are you? Here's why that question uh, is so gracious. We, we spent this, this past fall going through the book of Colossians, and one of Paul's most important themes in that book is understanding our union and our fellowship with God. Though he's in heaven and though we're here on earth, we have union in Christ as if we are one people, one body. He's the head, we're the arms and legs. We are one, we are one, we are one. And with this question in Genesis 3, we don't have ego like we have when someone sins or rebels against us. What did you do? What did you do? God goes for the jugular. Where are you? He knows what they did. He knows what they've done, but do Adam and Eve know it yet? Do they know what they have done to this fellowship, this this oneness, this communion together of walking in the garden, in the cool of the day? Do you know what you have done? Where are you? That fellowship is now broken. If he began with an accusation, if he began with judgment, if he asked, what did you do? That would only drive them, and, that, and comments and questions like that only drive us further into hiding. But a question demands a response, and especially a gracious question like this Where are you? It's meant to draw them out of hiding. So, do you see how even just the presentation of a question and a kind question is meant not to judge or wag a finger or put that finger right in their chest, but it's meant to draw them out from behind the trees? It's meant to draw them out of their shame out of their embarrassment. Where are you? Where are you? Come out. So already, before we get to verse 15, which is, you know, you know the, the most popular uh, verse in, in chapter 3 that's associated with the good news, before verse 15, we already see signs of God's grace and His mercy in, 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 in the face of our rebellion, in the face of our sin, in the face of our shame with this question, where are you? but he also uh, responds with the covering. Obviously, the fig leaves uh, weren't going to work. Those aren't going to be permanent. Uh, One pastor put it this way, you already see how creation is beginning to work against Adam and Eve. This curse uh, of the ground uh, is already now affecting uh, their clothing. So again, in God's mercy and His grace, He provides skins. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them." Um, notice here the difference between what Adam and Eve made and what God made. What Adam and Eve made were loincloths, not garments, they made loincloths which just covered the vitals. But again, like we said, these, these clothings and accoutrements were, were temporary, they, were, they weren't going to last. So, what God did was He took something more permanent, um, the skins and furs from other ma- animals, and He makes garments. And this, this word, when it's used throughout the Old Testament, it's often referred to garments that the priests wore, uh, which went all the way down to the ankles. Uh, so, before we had, you know, these, these fig leaves that were just covering the vitals, just the essentials. And now they're given, given these coverings that go all the way down to the ankles. They're going to need protection for life outside the garden. Lord knows that. So He provides these coverings that go all the way to the ground, all the way to their ankles, that are going to last a long time. Uh, and, there, and there's a bit of irony here in this passage, too. I remember back um, when we were discussing creation. Day six is very different than the rest of the days because it's the creation of man. So not only are are they made in God's image, and nothing else in creation is made in God's image, but he he commissions Adam and Eve and says, over all of creation, over all the earth, and over all the creatures, I give you authority. I give you dominion. They work for you, Adam and Eve, not vice versa. They're under you. You're not peers. I've given you authority over them. But what just happened in chapter 3? What did the snake, what did the creation... Do to Adam and Eve. They flip the economy. Adam and Eve listen, subject themselves to a creation, to the snake, to something that they're supposed to have authority over and not be uh, under their authority. But what do they do? Willingly, they go under his authority, under the authority of creation. And what you see God doing here with these garments is he's resetting the system. He's saying, here's how creation is meant to work for you. Let me show you. Let me put things back in order the way they ought to be. Um, creation is meant to serve you. You're not meant to be cruel towards animals. This is not like pro-fur um, or, you know, or you know, anti-fur, but, but this is the way it's supposed to go. Creation is supposed to work for you. It's supposed to be under you. Let me show you. Let me craft garments out of their skins for your protection. Let me reestablish this cultural mandate that you're supposed to rule and subdue this earth, and you're going to need coverings to do that, because life outside the garden is going to be hard, and it's going to be difficult. Here's how it looks. Very gracious response by God, wasn't it? Uh, Let me end uh, end with this. Um, When you think about clothing throughout the Scriptures, clothing plays a very interesting role. It's an interesting theme. Uh, when, when clothing is given, um, it's always a positive thing. It's meant to communicate acceptance. It's meant to communicate uh, joy. It's meant to communicate approval, right? Uh, when you think about uh, Jacob and Joseph in the Old Testament, uh, who was Jacob's favorite son, and how did he show that Joseph was his favorite son? He gave him a coat of many colors. You know, signaling to his older brothers that Jacob is going to lead the family, or that Joseph is going to lead the family one day, Uh, but that Joseph was special. Uh, When you think about um, the story of Jonathan and David, Jonathan was the rightful heir of the throne, right, being Saul's son, but he believed God that David was going to be the next king. So, what does Jonathan do? He takes his royal robes off, and he gives it to David, and he dresses David's shoulders with the robe. Uh, Think about the prodigal son, Uh, when the prodigal son returns uh, home, uh, the father runs to him, the father kisses him, Uh, the father puts a ring on his finger, they celebrate with a feast, but the father also takes a robe and he puts it on his son, again signaling that acceptance, that joy, that approval. Uh, when people are clothed in the Scriptures, it's always a positive thing. At the same time, when, when, when people are exposed, or when people are without clothes, um, when people are naked in the Scriptures, um, it's usually associated with shame and with guilt um, and with exclusion. Um, we've got that in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, remember the story of Noah after the flood and his, his exposure uh, to his family. But in the Gospels, uh, the Gospel writers go to great length uh, to communicate that when Jesus Christ was crucified, he was, he was hung up on the cross without clothes. Why did they go to great lengths to give us that, that detail to us that might be additional, superfluous, like why do we need to know that? It's already, a, you know, a difficult situation to read anyway, but, but why was He naked? Why was He crucified without clothes? Here's why. What we just read in Hebrews, what Jesus endured and what He suffered was the shame of the cross, the shame of public execution. He is naked up on the cross. It's because we as rebels, as sons of Adam and Eve, we are the ones who deserve To be up on the cross, and not just up on the cross, but exposed, full of shame, uh, unaccepted, and judged. Jesus is naked because He's standing in our place. He is without clothes, because that's what exactly we deserve to be. And what He says in His great gospel is, is, I have removed these clothing from myself. I'm going to endure the shame, The scorn, the embarrassment of this cross, uh, the Father turning his face away so that you don't have to. Not just so that he can overlook our sin or just dismiss it, so that he could take his royal and righteous robes, which are white and pure and clean, and he gives us those robes and he dresses our shoulders with his garments. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, be dressed with heavenly dressings. That's exactly what he's talking about. He's saying, be clothed, not with earthly clothing, but with heavenly clothing. That's why Jesus was crucified without clothes, is so that we who who struggle with shame... Shame has been the narrator of our life, and, and we're, we're, we're isolating ourselves. We're offering all of these excuses. What if there was something better than fig leaf excuses? And what if there was something better than hiding and isolating ourselves? What if there was a garment that could cover all of our shame, all of our sorrow, all of our embarrassment that would communicate full acceptance, full approval, and full joy? That's exactly what Jesus gives us in this gospel. Think about it this way. In the garden, we have Adam and Eve hiding behind a tree full of shame, full of embarrassment. But in the gospels in Jesus Christ, we have the last Adam, not hiding behind a tree but hanging on one, conquering guilt, conquering our shame. They give us something better than excuses, to give us an answer uh, to this this sorrow and this embarrassment that we feel on our very insides. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, God wants you to know that. He wants you to feel that and experience that, and maybe perhaps today in a new way. He doesn't reluctantly forgive, but joyfully he takes those robes off his shoulder and he dresses you in it. So when God the Father looks at you, he sees something that's white. He sees that something that is, is, is full of glory and full of brightness. Go back to the, uh, on, on the, uh, the call to worship. Again, I just don't kind of throw these, these passages together. Look back at the call to worship. Blessed Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He puts that garment on you. And he takes your shame. So that when the Father looks at you, that's what he sees. But you know those aren't your clothes. Those clothes were given to you by someone else. And that makes you say, isn't Jesus great? Right? Isn't Jesus great? And if you're here this morning and, you know, church frustrates the fool out of you, you're here reluctantly, you're not sure what you believe about the gospel yet, again, you're most welcome um, and, and a sermon's not an opportunity to, to finger wag or, 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 to, or to shame you, but instead I offer you this question, and it's God's question, where are you? Are you tired and worn out because being in the business of providing temporary coverings like figs, fig leaves are exhausting and it's isolating and that is no way to live life. You were meant to live in fellowship with God, and He asks you, where are are you? You can be clothed in white. He can do something with your shame and with your embarrassment. Maybe you take Him up on that today, too. Isn't Jesus great? Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for this great gift of clothing that You give to us. Thank you for clothing our nakedness. Thank you for clothing our shame. Thank you for not abandoning us or leaving us by ourselves, but becoming the very thing we need for forgiveness and for life and to have it everlasting. We love you, but it's because you loved us first. And we praise you and thank you, Christ, for dying on our behalf. Encourage us Restore us, refresh us, and and for some of us, bring us out of darkness, bring us out of nakedness, and bring us into your glory, for we pray in Christ's name, amen.